one decision, one click left or right of the path, one weak moment, one promise broken, one moment in our lives, one day, one event, one sequence can divert our lives in a direction completely away from where God wants us to be. And it can happen in the most interesting times of our lives. It can happen in moments when we least expected it. It can happen after a season of just walking and running hard after God. It can happen after 20 years of following God hard. It can happen in a moment. One click, one decision can divert us far away from God. In fact, pilots, we have many pilots that go to Grace Community, just a few, Greg Replogle or Andrew Rumfeld or Boyd Smith and, and Randy Gingrich. If they were to, to, to stand up here, they would say something similar to this. Pilots tell us that for every single degree that you fly off course, just one degree, you will miss your target landing spot by 92 feet for every mile that you fly. So that amounts to literally about one mile off target for every 60 miles flown. Just one little right off the path, one little click of the instrument panel, one degree we can end that far off. In fact, if you decided to start at the equator and fly around the earth one degree off the entire time, you would land almost 500 miles off your destination point. So the longer you travel off course, the farther you will be away from where you're supposed to be or your intended target destination. So think about that for a second. If you were to fly from JFK on the East Coast to LAX on the West Coast and you stayed one click, one degree off target for that entire trip, that would put you 40 miles out in the Pacific Ocean. So literally, you would be able to use your seat as a flotation device for the first time. If you've ever been on an airplane, they always tell you about this seat is used as a flotation device. So calmly grab your seat and float away. Um, it's amazing how they say that. But you would get a chance to use that if you were one degree off. Jim Rohn once related that, that neither a marriage nor business fails overnight. He says that cataclysmic failures generally come from a series of small, correctable decisions. And he likes to call them one-degree failures. And he, he goes on to say this, that, that just as it's hard to recognize being one degree off while flying at 30,000 feet, it's difficult if we don't check or have accountability in our lives to determine whether or not that one degree failure is happening in our own lives. So staying off course doesn't have to result in cataclysmic failure if we correct if we take time to make adjustments along the way. So this walk that we have with God requires daily adjustments. Let me try to explain it this way too. In my hand, I have a scope. And if you've ever shot a shotgun or if you've ever shot a rifle and you want to shoot something at a distance, you will put a scope on it. The intended purpose of a scope is to zero in on the target that you're shooting at. And so when you purchase a rifle, or purchase, in case this is a shotgun for my Remington 870, if you were to, to, to shoot this gun, you want to hit the intended target. So you mount the scope and you take a shot at the intended target. 
And after shooting, you walk up to the target and say, well, that's three inches to the right or three inches to the left, or four inches high, or four inches low. And if you ever looked at a scope, you will see that on a scope, there are these dials. There's a dial on the top, I'll simplify it, and a dial on the the side. The one on the top controls up and down. The one on the side controls left and right. And so when you shoot, if you're three inches to the right, you would take this scope and you would go to the left-right adjustment and they call them clicks. You could take a coin or a screwdriver. And in this case, if you needed to move it three inches to the left, this scope is aligned in such a way that every click is a quarter inch. So do the math. Three inches, four clicks, 12 clicks. You fire again, and after a couple shots, you see if you've made the adjustment. So you click back to where you're supposed to be. Two springs ago, I went bear hunting in Alaska. And so I had a 30 6 rifle, Remington 30 6 And I wanted to zero it in. I wanted to make sure that the scope wasn't off. I wanted to make sure that when I shot the rifle, that it wasn't off a degree or two. And so I zeroed it in. Jeff Tinsley took me out and I zeroed my rifle in for 200 yards. And so I went through numerous shots to finally click it back so it's not off course to be on the target. So if I saw a bear in Alaska, I could shoot at it and not miss and have it charge me. So I got on an airplane. We flew to Anchorage, Alaska. We landed in Anchorage. We took a car from Anchorage to Whittaker, and then we got to this marina port, and we drove in this boat out across Prince William Sound for about three to four hours. It was an incredible trip out across the bay. Killer whales jumping around me, otters and eagles swooping down. We got to our destination point, and when we got to our destination point, we put our tents out. We tented it for eight nights out in the the wilderness. After we got camp set up, Sam Armington, who attends here, was the guide. He said, we better make sure that our rifles are still zeroed in. So he said, let's check them out. So he put a paper plate out about 75 to 100 yards. We pulled out our rifles and we wanted to see whether or not the rifle that we were shooting would still stay on track for the intended target. If it was off, we would click. If it was up or down, we would click left or right. I fired a shot and it was on target. The reason we did that is because we put our guns in cases and put them into the bottom of this jet plane as we flew. And along the way, it got bumpy. It would have been real easy for our scopes to get bumped, for our scopes to no longer be correct or zeroed in. And then we put them in the boats and we traveled out across the Prince William Sound Bay. And so we did that so that needed to be, we would recalculate our scopes. So each day we would get in a boat and we would spot and stalk. You would get in a boat and you would look for black bears on the side of the mountains. So day after day, we'd get out and we would scope the shorelines looking for black bear. Once you see a black bear, you take the boat to the shore and you stalk a black bear. Now, you want to make sure that your rifle is zeroed in when you shoot at a bear. You don't have an angry bear coming back at you. 
One of the evenings, after about four days of hunting there, we decided just to go and sit, do some steel hunting up in the mountains. Along the shorelines, I sat down behind a tree. The guide that was with me walked down across the mountains to check on the boat because the tide would drop almost six to eight feet within a few hours. So he went to check to make sure that the boat wasn't beached. While I was there, they instructed that sometimes you're hunting, and when you're there, bears just appear like ghosts. They're just, you're looking, and there they are. I was seated against a tree. It was one of the evenings. I had my rifle beside me on a bipod, laying right beside me. I was looking to my left, and I looked to my right, and there it was. A big black bear had worked its way into this meadow area, and it wanted to get some fresh water to drink from. The water that was around us was salt water. So I grabbed my rifle that still had the bipod open on it, and I picked it up and was going to try to do a free hand shot. Why wisdom ran through my mind. Jim, you just flew this many miles. Jim, you might not ever get another chance to shoot at a bear. Jim, if you miss or wound, bear come get you. So I thought in my mind, I better make sure that I can hit this bear. So I calmly laid my rifle back down, crawled over to the, when it was on a bipod, kept my eye on the bear, was about 200 yards away, and zeroed in, hoping that my scope was still zeroed in. I slowly pulled the trigger off, aimed at the bear, rolled it over, make a long story short, I killed the bear. He's now in our office, hanging over top of the computer, and every time Ann looks at it, there it is, waiting on her. All that to say this. I needed to make the necessary adjustments to my scope so that it wasn't off one degree. So that it wasn't up one degree or down one degree. I needed to make sure that it was zeroed in. And so you have to adjust your scope. If you don't, then you can get off track quickly. I'm about to show you in the book of Judges a person who made one little click to the right. One little click to the left. Whose destination was intended for that, but ended up way out here because they didn't make some mid-life adjustments. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 13. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. But turn to Judges chapter 13. And we're going to read verses 1 to 5. Judges chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will be glad. Stand with me and we'll read this together. Let me also say this. I'll be reading from the new NIV and if you're a, a smartphone holder or an iPad or, and you have Bible on your computer, over the past couple months, your NIV 1984 was removed and it was replaced with the new NIV. And so that's the NIV I'll be reading for. So for you that have been following along for the last six to eight weeks, and you're like, man, this is different. You're going to be saying, yeah. For the rest of you who haven't made that adjustment, hold on. Maybe one day you'll move on to make this adjustment. The Bible you had is a good one, but I don't want to become that person who became Came like the King James only and now become the NIV only, 84. This is a great aversion and we're going to read it today. Judges chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. 
Let's read this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zor named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. You may have a seat. Right away we see that there's this man, this boy that's about to be born with the name of Samson. An angel of the Lord comes and ministers to his mom and says, guess what? You're going to have a son and he's going to give birth to a, you're going to give birth to a, a son and he's going to take the lead and deliver Israel. Now imagine the responsibility that this mom felt. Angel of the Lord came knocking at her door and said, this son of yours is going to be a deliverer. He's going to take the lead and he's going to lead Israel. Number one, that's quite a responsibility for a parent to keep that child on track as she raises him. And then to know, wow, look at this calling that's on this child's life. So he comes to her, lets her know. Imagine, imagine today, moms or moms-to-be or fathers-to-be. If, in fact, God came and visited you and said, your child... It's going to be the next president of the United States, and he's going to lead America out of the mess that we're in. That's what it would be like. Imagine the pressure that you would feel and the daily reminders that you would give your child. Now listen, stay on the narrow path because there's coming a day when you're going to lead us out of this mess. There were some Nazarite vows that you had to take as a Nazarene too. You couldn't drink, you couldn't eat anything that was unclean, and you never cut your hair. Now imagine that if you had a, a deal with, you had a problem with your son never cutting his hair for 20 years. And some, some sons were like, ah. But for you, it might be a big deal. There was these calling, there was this calling on his life. He was destined for greatness. His intended destination was greatness. He was getting God's favor stamped on his life. I think God has done that for you and me. I think before the foundation of the world, he's gifted us. He's given us talents. He's given you talents. He, he's given you a personality. And he has this intended destination for you. He has this path that he wants you to stay on. He has this target that you're shooting for. Yet every day of our lives, we are challenged and tempted to go one degree this way, one degree that way. Samson was called to be great and to be the deliverer of Israel. We are called to be great. And we are supposed to live to our redemptive potential. But if we make one click left or one click right and stay on that path for a long time, we'll end up far short and we'll end up in the Pacific Ocean with our flotation device. Look at Samson's life. We see that, that he was called out. Look at chapter 13. 
Chapter 13, verse 6, it says, Then the women went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of death. So the child is born. And then it says this in verse 25, or verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir while he was in Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtael. So we see Samson. He's born. His life is marked out. Just like God said. And then this happened. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Wait a minute, you want to say, Samson, don't go one click right. You're not supposed to marry a Philistine. You're supposed to marry an Israelite. Look on and it says this. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? In other words, they're asking, are you sure? How many times in our lives have our parents said that? Or how many times have you said that to your child? How many times have you said that to your husband or friend or brother or sister? Are you sure you're supposed to be going out with that person? Are you sure you're supposed to go to that school? Are you sure you're supposed to be worrying? Are you sure you're supposed to make that business decision? Are you sure? And so mom and dad ask, are you sure? Because in their mind, he was going one degree, one click left or right of the path that had been marked out for his life. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. God constantly, even when he made poor decisions, would turn it into good. So look at verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And they approached the vineyards of Timnah. Suddenly, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Pause for a second. When's the last time you've ever heard of anyone grabbing a lion that wasn't in a zoo, grabbing with the bare hands, catching it, and tearing it into pieces? This was strong man, really strong man. He had God's blessing on his life. So look what happens. He sees this woman. He likes her. He's distracted. One click, one degree is going to get him on a path far away from God. Verse 8. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. He veered off the path. He, he, he took one click to the right. And in it, he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he re- 
joined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast that was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Then he says this, let me tell you a riddle. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. So they said, tell us your riddle. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the either something to eat, out of the strong something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here for him to steal our property? So you see this, Samson is about to veer so far off the path that he almost loses his intended destination. They come to him and they say, hey, you better tell us the answer or he's going to take 30 pieces of property from us, 30 linen pieces of garment from us. We don't want to give him anything. So find the answer to his strength so we can wipe him out. Not only wipe him out, but find the answer to this riddle. Read on with me. Then it says this. Verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson, coax your husband explaining. Verse 16, then Samson's wife threw herself on him sobbing. You hate me. You don't literally love me. How many times have we've heard that as husbands and wives? You've given me a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. He says this, I haven't explained it to my, my father or my mother. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her husband. How often does that happen to us in relationships? Okay, enough. If, if I can shut you up, husband, I'll give you the answer. Finally, he had had enough of the, the, the nagging, of the pressing, that he finally just said, all right then, enough, just, just so we can move on. It's amazing. When you get off that path, it just, you slowly stale. And it starts with one poor decision. And you just continue to compromise and compromise and compromise and compromise and compromise. He compromises, gives her the answer so that she'll stop nagging. Then it says this in verse 18. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. In other words, if you haven't went after my wife, there's no way you would know this answer. Then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Eshkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's homes. I think it's interesting. He goes and kills some of their own men still takes it from them, gives them garments from the dead men that he just killed to pay his debt. Then in verse 20, it says this, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Later on, however, it says this in chapter 15. 
At the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. Verse 2 of chapter 15. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive than, than her instead? Let me give you the Old Testament customs here. During the Old Testament, when you went to marry someone, when you were getting married, the bride-to-be, if something would ever happen to the bride, if she would die, and in this case, if she run away from you, if she would leave you, then your next bride-to-be was the sister of the bride, who normally was the bridesmaid. Same is true for the man. When you were marrying a male in the, in the Old Testament, you would marry him. And if he died or he left you, the next person you would marry would be his brother who was the best man. Now imagine how that affects dating. Think about that. Not only are you looking at that dude, but you're checking out his big brother that's next in line. Imagine as you're standing at the wedding, you're saying, I do, and you're looking, I guess, So the customs of the day have changed a lot. Maybe that's good. Maybe it's not so good. But in this case, the father also says this in chapter 15. He says, you were gone, so I gave her someone else. I gave her your companion. And then he says this in front of his daughter who's there. By the way, you should take my other daughter because she's more attractive than this daughter. Dads, don't ever go there. Don't listen to this from this father here. It's going bad quickly. And why? Because one little click got Samson off track and he wasn't on the intended path that God had marked out for him. Read on. Verse three, Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks, the standing grain together with the vineyards and the olive groves. Now, imagine, just wrap your mind around this. Have you ever seen a fox? They're sleek. I've seen them at in the evenings. And when they see you, they run. Imagine he went out and caught 300 foxes. Then it says he tied all the tails together by pairs. Imagine waiting in line and you're the next fox up. Then he took a torch to the tails of the foxes, burned them, and they scattered into the village. Now that is fox fire if I've ever seen it. Runs into the villages, burns up the stalks, Kills everything. By the way, the Philistines are a little ticked. But Samson is repaying because someone stole his wife that he shouldn't have. This little click led to this direction. And it led to a path that Samson was far, far, far away. Compromising after compromising after compromising decision. Then it says this. Verse 6. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnonite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. They died. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get revenge on you. He attacked him viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock. He kills a thousand of them. 
And then it says this in verse 18. Because he was thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called in Hakor, and it's still there in Lehi. Then it says this, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. I find it interesting here that somewhere after these poor decisions that he was making, this path that he was way off path, he corrected, he recalculated. Because the text doesn't say anything more than he led Israel for 20 years. At some point, he recognized the error in his path and he came back to God. And for 20 years, he was faithful. For 20 years, he was zeroed in on the target. For 20 years, he kept adjusting and stayed on this path. He lived up to his redemptive potential. He lived out his calling for 20 years. I wish we could end right here. I wish we could just stop and say, praise God through all blessings flow. He finally got it. But it doesn't happen that way. Because in verse 16, or chapter 16, in verse 1, it says this. One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. All it takes is one look. All it takes is one glance. All it takes is one decision. 20 years of faithfulness. 20 years. And then text says, one click, one day. He noticed the prostitute. And he stared. And his, his desire of the flesh for sensuality got the best of him. And he went in and slept with this prostitute. And you want to say, Samson, no! No! One look. And all it takes is one poor decision to get us off course. The second look can short-circuit your destination. His physical strength, Samson's physical strength, was unmatched by anyone except by his moral weakness for sensuality. As strong as he was physically, he was just as weak when he looked at women and it got the best of him. Every great man and woman has a weakness that can destroy something if left unaccounted for. By the way, what's yours? For some, it might be power. For some, it might be an accomplishment. For some, it might, I need that possession. For some, it might be anxiety or worry. For some, it might be gluttony. For some, it might be that next thrill. We need accountability to bump us back, to say, no, get back. We need someone to speak into our lives that says, do you realize that you've been making these decisions for 10 years? Do you realize that you used to be out here, but you're over here? Because once you get on that path, just like the pilot said, you start traveling when it doesn't seem so bad. You kind of get used to it. You, you quench the spirit of God who's been coming after you. You just keep shooting water on it and you just keep dousing it and you become dull, literally to, to the conviction of God. And before you know it, you become the very worst version of yourself. It doesn't happen in one night. It's all those little decisions and justification. And here's how it goes. 
you go down this path and make this choice. And after a while, you know, everyone else around you kind of says, well, that's just who they are. We'll just accept them for that. And you justify and justify and justify and justify instead of saying, God, I repent and I come back. I need to click my scope back or I will miss the target. Samson is far off. So they want to attack him. And so look at verse four or verse three. They want to attack him at night. Verse 2 says, the people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. He's with the prostitute. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him. All night at the city gate. They made no move during the night saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, just pause for a second. Just wrap your mind around this. If you're those guys that are going to attack Samson, it says that they were hiding at the city gate and they were going to attack at dawn when he was fast asleep. Because we're going to soon see that he was a, a deep sleeper. But he wakes up in the middle of the night. He goes, it says, to the city gate. Guess who was behind the city gate? The Philistines, he yanks the post, it says, pulls him right out of the ground, takes the gate. Scholars who are a lot taller than me said the normal weight of a city gate was 1,000 pounds. Picks up the city gate and the post, carries it, and it says he takes it top to the Mount of Hebron, which archaeologists and, and ge- people who are good at geography say that was 20 miles. He walked almost 20 miles with a thousand pounds. Now, back up a second. If you're one of those guys that said, I'll get him, I'll show him who he is. Imagine seeing Hulk walking out. Imagine the fear it sent through them as they watched this mammoth, strong, superhero, God-blessed man take the city gates and carry them away. 20 years He had long victory. He probably felt indestructible. Verse five. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how he can overpower and how we can overpower him so we can tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Let me put that in context. A normal woman during this time made 10 shekels a year. They said, we'll give you 1,100 shekels. Put it in a context of this. If you made $30,000 in a year, that would bump you up to $30 million. So think about this for her. That was a year's wage woman, and now she was going to move from 10 to 1,100, from 30, literally, to 30 million. This was vested interest on her behalf to find out where his strength came from. Samson is totally distracted. And so fatal distraction numb your spiritual senses. And look what happens in verse six. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings from the Jerusalem ace hardware that had not been dried, and she tied the, him with them. 
with men hidden in the room, she called to him. When I read this, I always ask the question, how come he didn't see the dudes hang, that, were, that were hiding in the room? By the way, you come into my bedroom and you think you're going to sneak in? I find you and it won't be good. And the same, and I think about this, like, Samson, are you that much of a deep sleeper that you don't know that there's dudes in your closet hanging out in the master bedroom below your bed? Anyhow, I just don't, I, he must have been a deep sleeper. Then it says this, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. And I want to say, Samson, why, where are you wasting time and why are you messing with the call on your life? Verse 12, so Delilah took new ropes, tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called again, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes of his arms as if they were threads. I would have loved to have seen the look on the faces of the Philistines who were hiding, thinking, we get him now. And he goes, as they ran away. Look what happens again. Delilah said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? He replied, if you weave seven braids into my head, into the fabric of a loom, and make me look like a potholder and tighten it with a pen, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, deep sleeping guy, Delilah took seven braids of his head and wove them into a fabric and tightened it with a pen. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and pulled up the pen and the loom with the fabric. Imagine the look on the guy's faces again. Never once did he ask her why she wanted to know about his strength. Now, Let's pause for a second here and think this. It's worth repeating this. Don't you think after a while, if you've been going out with this girl and she tries to kill you like three straight nights, that you would say, I don't think I want to go out with her again. I mean, he is so far off course that he is, he's dull. Imagine having that conversation with your dude. You know, you're going out for coffee the next morning. Say, hey, how'd that date go last night? Well, it, didn't, it went pretty good until she tried to kill me. Um, so how'd it go? Well, we're going out again this Friday night. What? I mean, can you see how the common sense is just, I mean, after like two tries, wouldn't you say, um, I don't think I'm going out with you again. Anyhow, look what happens next. It moves on. Verse 15, then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? She's throwing the love card. You don't love me. If you really love me, you would buy me that. And if you don't love me, I could have $800 for that dress. And, and if you really love me, you would give me that Harley Davidson on Father's Day. We've all used that card, and it never works. This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. In other words, he said, enough. And she continued to nag and nag and nag and nag. Instead of recalculating, clicking back on target, he was far, far away from God 
and a calling on his life. And just to get rid of this nagging woman, he said, cut my hair, shave my head. Verse 17, so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used in my head because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me. I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, he sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. I bet they came back in their Nike freeze the next time so they could run quickly. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair. Now, he... he, he he slept through becoming a potholder. Now he's going to sleep through getting his head shaved. Then it says this. After putting him to sleep, she called for someone to shave off his seven braids. So he began, so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called the Philistines. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But look what the text says. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's amazing how far we can get away from God. Just compromise after compromise. And we think, well, God will bless me out here. I'm not so far away. At least I'm better than them. (laughs) I'm better than her. It's not as bad as last time. Listen, one click away from God is far away from God. He got so far out and justified his poor and sinful decisions that he didn't even know that God had left him. And in a matter of days, he is put on the injured reserve list without pay because of these one degree left decisions. Look what happens to him next. Verse 21, then the Philistines seized him gouged out his eyes. The irony in that is almost unbelievable. The very eyes that cause him to fall will no longer cause him to fall again because he won't be able to see another woman. They gouge out his eyes and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to what? grow after it had been shaved. I love this passage in in this text, but here's what that means. It's a metaphor for grace. Samson's strength came from God. And yet the truth is this, when his hair was long, his strength was in his hair. And the text says, with his eyes gouged out, And while he was pressing grain on the grinding mill and he couldn't see, his hair began to grow. God's grace was reaching him at a point when he needed him the most. God was willing to to reach down to his servant and say, I'll give you another chance. Our God is a God of grace. God was saying, you might be sidelined, but I still love you. And a second chance is on the way. So his hair begins to grow. And then in verse 23, it says this. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate saying, 
our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, Dagon, Satan, saying, Our little God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, drinking and celebrating, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. I honestly believe that Samson heard the celebration as he's grinding this grain. He could hear the Philistines saying, look what our God did. Our God beat his God. And it ticks me off when I see that happen. When I see a post or a tweet when I read something on frontline news on the internet or the newspaper, when I see where someone for 20 years ran faithful for God is now off here and then the enemy gets to celebrate. And not only that, they are making sport of Samson. They say, bring out Samson, bring out Hawkman. Let's let him lift some weights. Let's make fun of their God. There's nothing that ticks me off more when we let the enemy win in our lives. And I know it broke the heart of our God. And it does for him when we let the enemy make sport of us. Because we veered off the path and we just need bumped back. God extends some grace to Samson. So they're celebrating. They're not saying Yahweh. They're celebrating Dagon. Our God is better than Yahweh. And then it says this, this little phrase in verse 25. When they stood him among the pillars. My paraphrase would be this. That's not a good place to put a man by the name of Samson with his hair growing back between two pillars. And a man who now was given a second chance of grace from our God. Look what happens next. Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform, watching Satan making sport of him. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, sovereign Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me, remember me. I blew it. I'm asking for your mercy and grace. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Let me just say this today to you. I don't care how far off the path you might be. It might just be that first step last night. It might be you've taken three or four or five or six or seven and you might be full blown away from sin away from God. God says this, if we repent of our sin, he has so much grace that he'll say, come here, come here, child. Even if it's the 50th, 100th time, come on back. Our God is a God of second and third and fourth chances. And in this case, God does not or will not abandon his flawed servant when they become broken and contrite before him. He wants you to get back up and finish that calling on your life. 
He wants you to hit that target. He wants to give you a chance to click, 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 and hit the target again. God never will leave and forsake us, Scripture says, once we are his children. So look what happens. Verse 29, then Samson reached the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael and the tomb of Manoah, his father, he led, he had led Israel 20 years. Truth of the matter is this, he did go out in victory because of God's grace. But there's a part of me that says, I wonder how God could have used him. I wonder what could have been done. I wonder how many years God wanted him to lead Israel. Praise God for his grace. Samson just asked for one more day with God. God, let me go out, redeem me. Let me just say this. Our God loves to redeem our messes. In this room and in the link and across the world via the internet are people who call themselves Christ followers. The question is this. Have you veered just one click Have you made one decision that you're off path? Have you walked away? Are you in a relationship? Are you you striving after anxiety and worry instead of trusting God? Are, Are you lacking in integrity and character? Is there these things that all of a sudden you're far away? Are you living with someone that you shouldn't be living with? Are you in a relationship where you're giving yourself away? Are you lying? Are you cheating? What is that thing that somehow you say, well, it's not so bad? When in reality that you could remain on that path of compromise and compromise and there will come a day when you will end up in the Pacific Ocean needing a life flotation device. Listen to me. God says, come back home. I want to use you for what I've created you to be used for. The path marked out for us is clear. It's a straight and narrow path path filled with trials and hardships, joy and pain, and sometimes great adversity. Yet the end of this path that God has marked out for us, there's a great reward. And every day, you and I have decisions to make. Click, click, click. So that we finish and remain on the path that God intended for us to finish on. Let me just say this. I suspect in this room and in the link and around the world, if we're really honest with ourselves, we've probably made some decisions that haven't allowed us to run hard after God. We probably compromised just a little bit. And God is saying this, come on back, come on back, come on back, come on back. I'll extend you grace. You will never be who you were supposed to be until you come on back. 
in each of our services today, we've given people a chance to, to just come back. It might be something, something that doesn't seem huge, but listen, sin is sin. Sin causes separation. And it might mean for you today that you have to walk through some pride and say, God, I don't care what people think. I care what you think. And I want to finish with this calling that's on my life in a way that you want me to finish. There's a song that we're about to sing that has these words in it. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. I encourage you not to leave your venue today until you get it right with God. Don't dare think that God's going to bless a path away from him. And maybe you are like Samson and you haven't realized that God has left you. So we're going to sing this song and it's pretty simple. It's, we're going to give you a chance to just come and make it right with God. We're not going to... We're not gonna, uh, uh, talk to you. It's between you and God. And just say, God, I made some decisions I'm not happy with and there's sin in my life and I just want to come back. It might mean that you have to walk through some pride. It might mean that, that you have to leave your wife or your husband or your mom or dad or your boyfriend or your girlfriend and just come forward. It might mean that you make some decisions after this service that puts you back on track and re-zero on the target. So I ask you to stand and I'll pray. Lord, in this moment, the enemy wants to steal truth. And, and right now, he's whispering these sentences to Christ's followers. Say, oh, you're okay. It's not so bad. You're not as bad as him or her. And that little thing that you're dealing with, we'll take care of it later. And maybe the truth of the matter is that the spirit is on the other side saying, just broken, contrite hearts, God always ministers to And so I challenge you today to listen to the correct voice. Surrender your will to God. And when you do, God promises to take his servant and bring him home. That's where the blessing and favor comes. That's when you begin to see turnarounds in your life and your finances and relationships and That's where everything gets back on track. So I encourage you to come as we sing and just kneel and make it right. Don't let the enemy make sport of you any longer. So just come as we sing in Jesus' name, amen.